Hi, it's Steve Hargadana and welcome to the Future of Education. Howard Blumenthal is with us today. We're going to talk about reinventing school. Welcome, Howard. Thank you. Nice to be here. Okay, so how many shows have you done now? Uh, well, let's say how many shows have we done? And the answer is nearing 50. We're booking, we're booking enough shows in August and early September that we'll hit 50 shows. And we started out what last May, May of, of 2020. So it's been a little over a year. Uh, summer has been a little slower for getting guests. It's been a journey. Oh, yes. <laughs> so how, how are you different? after almost 50 shows? I'm disappointed, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I'm disappointed because we have a very large number of very smart, very dedicated people, adults, children, volunteers, PhDs, people who are running state departments of, of education and, and foreign ministries of, ministries of education in other countries. And yet, Everywhere I go, and I go to quite a few places because of Kids on Earth, which we'll talk about, um, the kids are bored and surprisingly detached from what actually happens in terms of curriculum and what they're supposed to be learning and what teachers are attempting to teach. And I don't know whether the system is working very well. I sense that it's not. And yet we have all of these wonderful brains who are trying to reform and improve and all that. And it seems to me most of the problems have existed for the, more than a century, and they seem to exist everywhere. Recent conversation during a conference with a woman in Cameroon who's a teacher, um, and I spoke for about two or three minutes, and she's like, that's my life too. So how can we have it so completely upside down in Cameroon and also in Canada and also in Malaysia? Like, how, how is it that we're following those paths? And what do we need to do to change it so that we face the 21st century in a better way? So those questions come up in various forms in almost every episode that we do of Reinventing School, but also in the writing that I'm doing and panels and speeches and all of that. Do you feel like you've answered that question at all? Yeah. I think we've made it very complicated because we're doing it largely top down and not bottom up. And we're doing it very much on 20th century versus 21st century thinking. So let me lay those out. The purpose of school from the child's point of view, from the teenager's point of view, from the parent's point of view is I think twofold. One, it's a reasonably safe place to go every day, a reliable one staffed by people who seem to know what they're doing and care. And the other is it has to point you towards a, at least a sustainable future, hopefully a successful future, and hopefully one in which you can make a great deal of progress, not only on behalf of yourself, but others. So if we begin there, what might we do? And one of the things that I certainly would do is work in smaller groups, not in a school of 5,000 people. Uh, I would make sure that we're really honoring and respecting the way that human beings learn and 
what it is that we want them to walk away with and carry with them, because they're going to live this generation until about 100 years old, if everything goes well. It's a long time to keep your body uh, working properly. It's a good idea to know a lot about that. And we'll talk more about that. What I'm seeing is an education system that largely sustains itself. It's a huge employer, something like uh, 100 million people now are employed by school around the world. That's the population of Mexico or Japan. That's a very large number of people. And when you have a large institution like that, particularly one that's delivered locally, so the power is very distributed, they're going to do things for their own continuation. They aren't, it's just too difficult to focus on those individual customers, those individual kids. So you standardize and you have evaluative testing that goes, you know, that goes across many different students, et cetera. I don't know that we still live in that era, but that's the way it's managed. And when I spend time with kids, regardless of age, regardless of income, regardless of faith or, or other factors, they're all individuals. And yet we don't treat them that way at all. But I think we will need individuals to power this mid 21st century. And I don't think we're doing that. So it feels like you've maybe identified two issues. One would be the natural dynamic of institutions. And Ivan Illich said, I'm paraphrasing, that institutions end up perpetuating the problems they were designed to solve. Yes. Because salaries, employment, people, et cetera. But the other sort of question is, is education a unique institution? Meaning we say it's about learning, but is it really? Well, it's about babysitting. I mean, let's all be clear. We do have uh, in the United States some number like 80 million students um, and they have to go somewhere every day. And, and we certainly saw this during the pandemic. If they're not in a, again, reasonably safe place, then the parents can't work. If the parents can't work, apart from those who can work at home, then you have an economic system that doesn't work. And we've put ourselves in a position now where it's simply more expensive to live. You need two cars. It's very difficult to maneuver around with just one if you're a family, et cetera. So you have to pay for that. And it, the way you pay for that is you work. And if you work, it means that you're not available, um, as my mom was, um, to be at home when, when uh, you know, to, to nurture that part of me. So we've sort of changed the way we think about what a family, what a community is about. And we've really outsourced much of that to school. And in the bargain, you know, we've sort of reestablished the way that, that communities operate, which I don't know is brilliant because we're not providing the support that we need, the scaffolding, uh, the sense of how one behaves, uh, the sense that you know, your peers are going to teach you a great deal and you're going to learn how to respond to that. And as a result, we're now trying to put social emotional learning into curriculum where it really is a community activity. So school has to have a, a broader role, but we also as adults in the community have to be paying a lot more attention and play a much more active role. Example, scouting numbers are way down. As income increases country by country, the number of and the robustness of adult volunteer programs on behalf of kids reduces. We've got the balance wrong. We adults really need to be in the lives of kids. And we've sort of forgotten how to do that um, at scale, uh, almost everywhere. 
with exceptions, but those exceptions are now notable. I mean, I think we'll end up talking a fair amount today about change and how it happens. But don't you have to have kind of a combined cultural commitment to do what you're describing? Oh, I think you absolutely do. Uh, and I think we saw glimpses of that during the pandemic as small groups of people all over the world took on the chore of, um, of trying to educate kids. Some of it with pretty humorous um, outcomes. Yesterday, I had a great conversation with a friend who um, was trying to, uh, grandma, and she, within the first 15 minutes, she realized I have no concept of how to teach children. She thought she did. They organized, they went to Ikea, they bought the furniture, they organized everything. But these are three boys, all young, and they had no intention of behaving. And she had no tools at all to deal with that. And there's no peer pressure because they're in her basement. So it's more complicated than we allow. And it does require special training. And it requires an enormous financial investment, an enormous investment in time. Why do we do that? And I think the answer, which we're all glimpsing now, is we're dealing with a very different kind of problem, a very different kind of society than we were in even the 1990s. And I'll be specific there. One, we're dealing with a massive pandemic. And not only did we prepare poorly for it, but our execution in most countries around the world in terms of vaccinations or whatever other uh, hospital management and on has really not been very good. We've managed to get through it more so in the United States, maybe than other places, but we don't know what the next few weeks or months may bring. Um, we're not especially well educated on public health because we don't really have a priority on that. So we have a lot of people who don't know much about, and then let's add on that list, climate change. Ooh, it's a very complicated idea. And if we're relying upon teachers to disseminate information about that, we have to clarify that information so teachers can teach it. But it's fairly difficult to organize the information about climate change in a way that can get beyond let's recycle um, you know, the, the, the plastics in the house. That's really not the issue. Um, and when you look at the other questions about what the workplace is becoming or how families are structured or where we live or how transportation systems work or how infrastructure works, all of this we did pretty well after World War II. We kind of figured out how to operate a society, but we've like doubled in size. We've changed the dynamics of where people live. We're facing now a very highly populated and very climate change affected um, uh, um, Asia and, uh, and Africa. The power structures have changed, the economic structures have changed, but schools haven't. So if our intention is to create a system by which we can have very large numbers of people about two and a half billion people, children, um, succeed and have them grow into adulthood, which will end up being over half the world's population that we are educating right now, or we will be within the next 20 years. That's a pretty serious commitment. We better know what we're doing. And I just don't think we're devoting enough time, energy, thinking to a unified system. I think we get very caught up in educating small groups, fragmenting off to do a particular kind of school, um, having way too much involvement from government and on high and far li too little trust in the individual teacher and the relationship between student teacher and community. I think we have to do a lot of shifting 
Uh, and then we have big questions about what it is we're teaching and why we're devoting so much time to certain subjects and very little time to others. Public health is one that we're, and personal health, we're kind of starving and hoping for the best. Uh, but we are devoting vast amounts of time to teaching history, for example. Not that it's not important, but we have to look at the whole picture. And I don't get the impression that we've been able to do that. I certainly haven't seen evidence of that in doing the 50 episodes of Reinventing School. So I want to go back to your three boys in the basement. Do you feel that you taught your own children important things? I think my children learned important things. I question the use of the verb teaching because it suggests an act by which I am changing somebody else's behavior. And I don't know that that's something that humans do or do in a way that sticks. I, I think I'm going to teach you a lesson. No, you're not. I may learn a lesson, but I'm going to learn a lesson because I'm interested, because it's relevant, because it has purpose, um, because I can see that there is meaningful intrinsic motivation. You'll get me through the next test on extrinsic motivation, but I won't remember what you taught me. I don't have any desire to, I don't care what you want to teach me. What I care about is what do I need to learn and what's the best way to do it? And if you're standing in front of me as a teacher and you're the best way to do it, I am absolutely with you 100%. And if we have common goals, that's terrific. But those kids, those three boys in the basement didn't. And I think that's true of most students. There's really not a lot of purpose that's clear. So I think they're learning on their own. I think they're using YouTube and going wall to wall on a subject that interest them watching every single video over and over and over again, and then maybe meandering over to a library because there may be some books about it as well. But the teacher less and less is the primary information source. That's very different because there are a lot of other sources. And by the way, they're more entertaining. I mean, you know, trying to watch a teacher get through a Zoom conversation. Some of them are very good at it. Most of them are not. Um, and, you know, when you sit in the classroom, and you watch a teacher teach, and then you, you look at a fully produced television show, for example, it's like, yeah, you know what, some of that would really be good if it was on the other side, because that's what they're competing against. It used to be, well, you know, you shouldn't watch so much TV. Now we do. We watch YouTube videos. We watch all this. And then we have to suffer through one person standing trying to explain something in the classroom to 30 people. It's not a good model. Not for most fair? subjects. Would it be fair to say that there are a variety of ways in which we influence other people, some of which you and I might categorize as positive and some we might categorize as negative, meaning the advent of the Prussian school model was successful because it worked. You could put students in rows with a teacher up in front at, at a higher level and it created an outcome, maybe not one you and I would call the best outcome, but certainly force and coercion do work sometimes. I don't know that they work long-term. And our game has changed. When we, were, when we were developing, and we as a people were developing a Prussian system of education, um, when's that gonna be, 1900, 1880s? Yeah, late, late 1800s. Okay. So let's think about what the workplace looked like then. We hadn't all migrated into cities. We're still very much on farms 
uh, throughout the world, right? Cities are beginning to gain momentum. Um, we do have railroads, but not everywhere. Um, we have a great deal of poverty. We have a great deal of disease. We're still in expanded families. So you do have multiple generations in the home. And we're beginning to move to a structure where the workplace pretty much resembles people in rows, people in factories, all of that, right? So, and that goes back further, but it's becoming really organized and mechanized. Ford, for example, coming up a little later. Um, and we're also becoming a society that wants money because we want to be able to buy stuff. That really wasn't the case early on. Now let's look at where we are now. Everything is individual choices. If you want to buy something, you're not going to a store. You're looking on a screen. If you want to watch something or learn something, you're looking on a screen or you're talking to a friend or you're finding somebody who knows something about it. And that person may be very far away from you, but you still have access to that person um, or people or group or MOOC or any number of other tools that you might use. So, I think I'm sure that what was being done at that time when we never used words like agency or future mindedness when we talked about students, now we do. We've allowed them to explore their own identities and encourage that. We want them to make their own decisions. Um, we want them to accept more and more rights and more and more responsibilities. Uh, we'll, I'm certain we'll lower the voting age in many places to 16 within the next 15 years, 20 years. Um, a lot of the information that was available only to adults is now available to everybody. We don't make the distinction quite so much anymore for good and for bad reasons. So when you take all of that and you look at that model, and that was a good model for its time, I guess, for certain people. I also don't think we'd had as many, a high, a high percentage of people in the workplace, in the workforce. Now we have women and men who are increasingly equal, um, and, uh, you know, and when it doesn't turn out that equality is the reality, it becomes a giant problem. That was not something that was happening when we were trying to figure out how to get Prussian soldiers not to run away. So we're in a very different world. And we have to face that and then deal with the individual as the center. Um, we've never had that before, not in these numbers and not at, at this scale. And yet we've developed school as a way of capturing a lot of common information. Common information isn't necessarily the strongest, the strongest um, structure to build on. We're in a place now where there's so much specialization. There's so many different topics to, to look at and discuss and learn that there may not be that benefit. In fact, it may end up being a problem that we're all learning similar things. We want multiple points of view now. We want to be able to look at history in Illinois, for example, they just passed a uh, legislature just passed a law saying that uh, Asian American history is now mandatory uh, within all schools funded by the state. Other schools are picking up on that. I, it's very easy to see that we're not just going to do um, that population. We're also going to do Black Americans, we're going to do Native Americans. So all of a sudden, we're going to have five times as many ways to teach social studies as we've had before. It's complicated. It takes time. You can't have everybody doing everything all the time. There just aren't enough hours in, in the school day, and we're not going to expand them. So you have to specialize. And specialization, we're beginning to see the tools that are necessary to be able to get there. Forget about standardized tests. It just doesn't make any sense if people are learning different things. We're in a 
era of massive change. We just haven't quite faced, haven't looked in the mirror yet. All of these questions exist at different levels. I, I certainly wasn't making the argument for force, but I'm not convinced that it's gone away. Meaning there was this tweet I saw the other day, I think it was from a student and he said, I've come to the conclusion that the sole purpose of homework is to condition children into accepting that unpaid overtime and ridiculous hours and not even being able to escape work even in your own home aren't normal things to expect in their future. Yeah, there is this sort of- It macro feels like for most students, it's still going on, right? Um, a couple of different ways to think about that. The first is, yeah, we're working at home. Every parent is now an IT specialist of some sort. We know so much more about how to plug technology in and what USB-C connectors are and all that. And the kids do too. So we have turned home into a cottage industry of sorts. We're back to that model. Um, we demand the connectivity. It's a problem that we don't, that we can't be on the internet 24 seven. And if that's propelled by, I'm curious about, I'm interested in, I'd like to earn a little more money. Great. It may also be, this is what the parent's job is all about. And increasingly, this is what the kid, the 15 year old kid's new company is all about as he's working or she's working or they're working with, with kids all over the world with similar interests. It is a different dynamic now than it was um, even in 2000. And part of that is propelled by widespread, let's call it 50% access globally to the internet. And you kind of have to look at this globally um, and you have to look at it much more broadly than we do. We're gonna have 80% internet access by 2030. That's less than 10 years away nearly everybody in the world, except in places where electricity is a big problem or politics is an issue, will have access to one another and to this vast store of information that continues to grow. With that, you're not going to be able to manage misinformation or disinformation. We're going to have to build much more, stronger bodies and stronger minds so that we'll be able to deal with it. The onslaught has just begun. We have a very different way of thinking what about the information in the world. I'm sorry. What percentage of students? What percentage of students do you think are having that kind of rich, self-directed, curious, curiously engaged learning that you're describing now? Between fifteen and twenty-five percent. And it's going to depend upon the country, the income level, even the state in the United States. But that number is rapidly increasing because. Phones are not as expensive. Phone services are not that expensive. Smartphones are, are sort of easier to, to have if you're a nine-year-old. So we're pushing the age down. We're increasing the amount of content. We're seeing more and more technology. And now because the pandemic is hopefully beginning to fade, more and more interest in investing in tech startups, ed tech or otherwise. So all of this is going to feed the individual, the concept of individual learning, we'll be able to look at some statistics and data across the board, but that's going to become increasingly constrained because we're now very obsessed with who owns the data and who can control the data and who can do the mix-ups on the data, right? So I think that we're seeing, we will see more and more 
arguments in favor of protect kids' data, protects kids' rights online. And at the same time, I think we're going to see workarounds and new companies that can actually make a profit and attract investors without necessarily capitalizing on that information. There'll be other ways to make money. Let's go back. Let's go back to the interview series. Did you have any real surprises as you performed the interviews? Was there anything that really surprised you when it came up? How different the adult's way of thinking turned out to be in comparison with the hundreds of interviews that I had uh, done on, for Kids on Earth. So for the past, what, three years, four years, I've been going around the world and interviewing kids in schools, each for about a half hour, um, and improvising questions, really listening to what they're interested in, and then building questions and, and conversation around that. And then I edit those pieces into three, four, five, six, seven minute uh, um, uh, segments. And there are now nearly a thousand of those. So I have a, a fair amount of knowledge. I really didn't concentrate when I was doing all of that travel because of time uh, on school. But I did have a fair number of informal conversations or I'd lecture a class or I'd have a lunch or dinner with teachers. So I began and everything was done in school. So I had a pretty good sense of how schools worked in many places in the world. Um, and I also did a lot of speaking at universities around the world, also related to how learning works and how education and school work and, and all that. So I'm working with a base of curiosity, some knowledge, and, and a lot of just hardcore sit at the screen and read the UNESCO report or read the World Bank report or, or anything or, or the, uh, um, the OECD reports by Andreas Schleicher, who was one of our first guests. And so I've, I've really armed myself with as much information as any reasonable person could. And then I started talking to the individuals who were responsible for developing and delivering and measuring um, the education. And, uh, and what I found is that they were very oriented, as we said before, uh, towards the system and towards thinking in terms of very large numbers of students. But what was different or what has been different about reinventing school is we have students in the conversation as peers with for example, the state superintendent, uh, the state chief in Maine or other places. And not only do the state, the high ups, the, you know, the powers that be, if you will, seem to understand what the students want, but they agree with the students. And the students tend to be much, moving much more in a direction of, we need to figure this out uh, because our own lives are all quite distinct from one another. Uh, so we need some basic knowledge, but we really need a lot more specialization. And the problem is when you go to that next level. So in Tennessee, for example, that's all fine. And we love the idea of individual learning, but we have a literacy issue. And we have to figure out how to have a sufficient number of people educated to be able to read and write in English at a certain level of proficiency. And that becomes more important and gets the funding so that the individual thinking and the more progressive ways of thinking about how people think and how people learn don't really get the attention. It's more complicated. It's more difficult to manage. It's more difficult to measure. But it doesn't mean it's less important. 
And unfortunately, we always get caught in those short-term issues, in part because legislation and funding, um, you know, an additional state funding come in and very few school districts beyond the richest ones really have enough money to work with from the current models. And now we're seeing issues with having enough teachers and safe classrooms as well. But funding the United States system through local income taxes and local property taxes is just not a way to fairly provide an equitable education to, uh, to large numbers of students. It is in places where there's enough money, but if not, we're just going to drive poverty and, and, and difficulty further into the core of society. It probably needs a lot more, uh, a different kind of a model. And there's issues with every kind of model. But at the end of the day, I'm still a 10-year-old kid trying to figure out how to navigate a system, knowing that I'm not learning what I need to be learning. So I take more of it on myself. Not every student, but, but maybe the good majority of the students who come on the show have been super well-spoken. I think sometimes even to the surprise of the other adults. Would you agree? Yeah, but I also find that with Kids on Earth, when I go into a lower income school that has not performed well, and then I sit down with a kid for a half hour and I'm blown away over and over again. We're not listening. We're not paying attention to what they learn outside school, which is a massive lesson. We're just not, it, school just is not set up like that. And as a result, we designed for a group, we're trying to teach them rather than paying attention to how they learn. And when you teach, I don't think you get the, I don't think the brain remembers the way you're hoping it would. And as a result, we invest a lot of money in trying to pour information into young brains that may be useful in the short term, but doesn't really have the resilience that's, that, that we require. And we're paying a lot of money for that to happen. I don't think we have it right. And you look at obesity or you look at, at um, uh, the level of understanding, whether you're a vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer, of just how viruses work. It's really tough, really tough. We're just not educating people so they can have an intelligent conversation about it. And that goes into politics and choosing leaders and understanding climate change and where do they ought to be living and whether or not it's a good idea to build multi-level apartment buildings on a barrier island in Florida. All of that one is measure I use, one measure I use for kind of understanding the sophistication level of an individual's thinking is their willingness to try and understand a different perspective. And I feel like this may be a generalization, but the students were much more open to thinking about different ways of thinking about teaching and learning than the adults have been. I think that's true, even if the kids are not at the top of the class, because they're living with it all the time. They know that their responsibility is to learn as much as possible about subjects that are relevant to them. That second part sinks the ship for, the, for most of school, because subjects relevant to them is really a pretty limited range very often. And we skip from one subject to another in our interests. So you and I are both very interested in various aspects of how school works and how education works and how societies change and all of that. 
but it's not the only thing, thing that's interesting to you. And it's not the only thing that's interesting to me. And I may end up spending a whole lot of time working on my watercolors that have nothing to do with that subject, but I will learn from that. Last night on the Olympics, um, there was a, uh, I think a swimmer, diver maybe, um, who's also a drummer. And he's like, I, when I want to learn more about diving, I definitely spend more time drumming. And when I want to learn more about drumming, I definitely spend more time working on diving. It's the way we learn. I used to say that, you know, how to, what's the best way to learn watercolors? And the answer for me was black and white photography because it allowed me to understand color, texture and contrast and depth and the impact of light and dark. And then I was able to carry that over to the other subject. We don't connect ideas that way, but that is the way people learn. We want to provide them with a wide range of activities and interests. Teachers have to encourage that. It's very difficult for teachers to do that one-on-one -on -one when they're facing a curriculum that nobody completely understands why it's there or what, what purpose it honestly serves long-term. We can justify it. We're very good at that. But I don't think that takes us to, listen, in 20 or 30 years, this is going to be the practical application in part because we don't know what the practical application is. So we kind of have to admit that to ourselves, that we need people to know how to learn and we need to get off this teaching thing. So why were the physical education teachers such a surprise? I'm going to flip that question and say, why were the uh, arts teachers? We did a sequence, just so everybody's clear, of the amount of time and the approach we take for the mainstream subjects, math, social studies, language arts, um, science. And we learned a lot about that. But then we did the subjects that don't get the amount of time or energy or money. Uh, and that was visual arts, performing arts, including music, um, health, personal health, fitness, uh, that range, and foreign language instruction. So Steve, you asked me which specific subject I confused myself. Physical education. Physical education. All right. Well, well so, they were so articulate in a way that wasn't necessarily, say, grammatically articulate or that we normally would associate with school, but that it felt like they were human articulate. Yeah. So it, I think that's because there's an authenticity about the experience without putting too, too generic a label on it. So if I'm a five-year-old kid, I'm probably facing 95 more years in my body. I might be facing 90, but I also might be facing a little more. So what's the most important thing for me as a kid to learn? And the answer is not numbers. It's not reading. It's not, it's how to maintain my body. How does it work? What do I do in order to be able to keep it healthy? What are the stupid things that I shouldn't be doing? Um, what do I need to be spending more time on? So organically, and I mean that in the literal sense and also in the, in the theoretical sense, um, learning about the human body and by extension, physical education probably is the most important subject that we can teach or that students can learn in school. It seems to me that that's far more important than mathematics, for example, the first half of the curriculum being useful, but you're certainly not going to use it to the extent that you would a knowledge of your heart or the knowledge of your lungs or a knowledge of your muscles. So 
we may need to flip it. But physical education gets far less respect in a school setting. And, and yet, I think they have very good reason behind them. Um, I think math gets a lot of respect, maybe too many hours um, in a school setting. And I don't know that they have the same level of utility and long-term value for the entire class. Certainly, you need to learn some of it. But I think that the wind behind the sails of that conversation um, was all about the long-term value and utility and purpose of that curriculum. Question is, how do they promote it? But I was struck by the same idea that they have something very real and very important that needs to be communicated to every single student, regardless of whether they become an accountant or, or a, you know, a financial planner or whatever, uh, you know, or an engineer on the math side. This is something everybody has. Everybody has a body. Everybody has a lot of the same issues. How do I keep it reasonably trim? How do I keep it fit? How do I make this fun? How do I stay with a routine? How does food affect it? Um, I, I think we build from there. I, if I were to redesign the entire curriculum, the first line in that curriculum would be personal health and fitness. It also seemed like they had a better perspective on the holistic goals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for a lot of the reasons that we talked about just now. Um, I, I think that they're clear in their focus. Um, I think it's very difficult for them to do their jobs because they're constantly the ones who get preempted and uh, you know schedule changes and they're not with the kids every day. Um, and uh, according to John Ratty, who I believe is quite a smart guy in the space, we need to be exercising multiple times a day in order to be able to enable the processes in our brain to actually learn and remember. So when you take that and you put it on top, I think we probably need three gym classes a day. I don't know what you're going to do about kids changing and sweaty bodies and all that, but we can probably figure that out. We also need to be outside. And I think these guys are much closer to reason and purpose and clarity than just about anybody else we met, maybe with the exception of the foreign language instructors who are really building on the basis of we need to be able to communicate with each other. Not so much you need to be able to conjugate verbs. I think they also were very much, have been very much on the right track. And I think the art teachers were brilliant because they're thinking about the work they do, not necessarily about how to cut construction paper, or the history of Picasso, but the world as a visual place where you can learn about different countries, cultures, habits, and all of that. I think the missing piece there is food. I think that we need to be teaching or have students be learning by preparing, growing and preparing food on their own. I think those are really core subjects for the 21st century. I don't know how you do social studies with all of the social sciences stuff now, part of that and misinformation and disinformation and media literacy, and also multiple perspectives. So you have one story, but now you've got to teach it in 10 different ways. The students have to learn it in 10 different ways. Very difficult to do that um, in the five or six years, seven years that's, that teachers get to teach social studies. I, I think that all of this needs a massive realignment, and I'm trying my best to get some activity happening in that space. I think that we've learned a lot from all of those eight episodes or whatever it was. And I encourage people to listen to them because we were as surprised and, and, um, and learned a great deal, you and I, and we know a lot about this. 
but uh, they, they were brilliant. I'm going to say this carefully, but I'm going to say it. It felt like the foreign language teachers were the most pedagogically articulate and the math teachers were the ones who were the most disconnected from the reality of the student experience. I think with the, we had about eight or nine foreign language people. And I think they were, I think we got lucky. I think we got a wonderful combination. We actually did two episodes. So it was more people than that. Uh, they had studied the, their place. They figured out how to maneuver from a relatively modestly important part to a much more important. And the world has changed also. I think that with the particular group of math teachers, and there were only two or three math people, there were only two or three, I think they had a specific agenda that they were trying to communicate. And I think we were asking a very different kind of question. I want to do another math episode. And in fact, that's in the works. So we have more people, more voices, more ways of thinking about this. What surprised me about the math episode was I began, because that was the first one we did in that part of the series, with um, how many hours do we spend uh, instructional hours in school, at least in the United States, but also in most OECD countries, and how much of that is devoted to math. And I was rather hoping for a very quant answer from them. And instead, what I got is, no, 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 you don't understand. You can't count it that way, which sounded to me like talking to a politician, not talking to uh, people who care about education. But I think we have to do it again, because I don't know that we did the job we needed to do. For a long time, I've used librarians as kind of my model of the best education influencer. No direct grading, lots of help in understanding how knowledge works an active interest in the students, but not um, kind of the, the contingent interest that happens in the classroom. After spending some time with Rebecca Muller on special ed, I've also come to see special ed teachers as a really good model for how learning can take place in the classroom because they're not at scale. Everything is about the individual. Given the fact that kids come very, come or develop very differently. Is it really just the case that we're trying to scale something that needs to be more individualized? Absolutely. I, I think the idea of having 5,000 high school students, all of whom are teenagers, so they're all going to have a degree of, uh, of drama in their lives. Um, I think it's a ridiculous idea. Uh, I understand the reason for it. I understand the logistics and the economics and, and all of that. I understand why you'd want to have Stuyvesant or Bronx uh, uh, School of Science, I think it's called School, School of Science or, or Brooklyn Tech in the combination or New York City and have those be larger schools. But all of this relies upon the direct personal relationship between a teacher and a student and everything else is just administration. It's just a way to get to make that possible. So I want to see those class sizes. And actually, this is not terrible. It's somewhere between 15 and 20. But I don't think the teacher is lecturing the group of 20. I think that it just that happens that you're the, uh, as the teacher, you're the guide for 20 people who happen to get together once a day in one room just to check in with each other and maybe share information. Once we get past 20, it's too easy to hide. I, you know, my public school education in New York, it was 29 or 30 students in every uh, class all the time. And 
you know, if I, if I wanted to fade away, even I was a little guy, I was in the front row, first name beginning with B, I was always in the front. So the teacher could keep an eye on me, but it was really easy for me to make myself invisible. I don't think I can do that if there's 15 people in the room. Um, I think the dynamic is different. I don't think you can have that group of three obnoxious 14-year-old boys in the back who are making fun of everything. It's, they, they, it, it, they're too close to everybody else. The peer uh, thing ends up working against them. But the way we have it set up now, it's really difficult for teachers to do what they need to do. And by the way, what they need to do probably doesn't make sense anyway, because it probably should be student-driven and teacher-guided, not administration or curriculum-driven and students as consumers. Like The model just feels very upside down to me everywhere. By virtue of this series, I've met both of your sons. Right. Just two? Yep. Okay. And I know my own children. And they're definitely very different. And so I work with them differently. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to imagine educating without taking that deeply into account. And remember, they're interacting with one another more than I'm interacting with either of them. That's a really important thing. They're interacting with friends, they're inter interacting with colleagues, and they're interacting with parents, and they're interacting with the school and the school community. We tend to think about people in the school community. It's just a part of their lives. It's not the whole life. And now with an online presence, there's even a, a greater population of people they're interacting with all the time. Um, but they're very different from one another. Um, they always have been very different from one another. They help one another. They argue with one another. Um, it's the way it's supposed to be. It's the way humans behave. And when there's a success, we all applaud the success. And when there's a problem, we all try to help you know, figure out how to solve it and who else do we know who might be able to help. Um, that feels very much like the world that I grew up in. That feels very much like the community. It doesn't feel very much like sitting in a room with 30 kids for 45 minutes to address this. It just doesn't, it, it does, it, like if I'm concerned because the dog is sick or something, I don't really care about the causes of the civil war. I care about my dog. So what I really want to do at that moment is I want to know what are the options for the dog? And is there anything I can do to make the dog more comfortable? So I really want to be hitting the Mayo dog clinic. I don't know what that, like I, there's probably a Mayo clinic for dogs, right? Um, so I want to spend my time on that. And I don't want somebody to get in front of me for that. Cause I'm not going to, I'm not going to learn anything else i'm concerned about this let me pursue this i who knows i might become a vet because i'm interested why is one bit of information more valuable than another and who decides that i think that you know if your dog is sick and you're a nine-year-old kid and you've got the internet and you want to know i think you're the one who decides that and i think the teacher is there to help you and so are your friends I'm intrigued by what you've just said, because as soon as you started talking about it, I thought about the likelihood of mask mandates this fall, the enormous amount of focus that there will be on all aspects COVID related and, and kids in school and teachers in school. What do you think is gonna be the impact of this past year and maybe the future on 
the social, emotional, and intellectual development of these students. We love a distraction. This has been a, a, a glorious distraction. And our response in not knowing whether we can touch anything, whether we can be in the same room, whether we should wear a mask, well, wear a mask, do the things that are, that are the obvious things. Don't do things that are stupid, foolish, ill-advised, all that. But that doesn't mean that we don't have trouble in River City. I mean, we do have big problems in the way that we have school organized and the way that kids are not learning. And the fact that kids have missed a year, yes, they've missed a year of the official school curriculum. But I don't know how valuable the official school curriculum is. And if they spend time learning about how animals... Um, you know, digest food. Um, and that ends up being useful. I think that's probably every bit as useful or more useful, but they're learning as individuals and that makes schools cry. They don't know what to do with that. That's that just, that messes with the head of a school um, because it's not the way schools are designed. It's like, you have to come back and learn our stuff. It's like, no, see, I've had a year and I'm really exploring the things that interest me. And that's a good thing. Now, doesn't mean that all the curriculum is wrong. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing uh, some of the things that are in there, but the way we go about it, the idea that we're trying to shove classroom instruction through a Zoom screen to kids who are as bored as they can be, who can just click off and pretend they're there, that's ridiculous. Like, by what measure do we think that was a good idea? And are we going to continue to do that? No, but are kids going to continue to learn from screens? Absolutely. We should enrich those experiences, but it doesn't have to be within a school setting. That's what I learned. But we obsess about all these, you know, anything that looks bright and shiny or absolutely dreadful, you know, that's where all the attention goes. Like pay attention to the kids, help them figure out what it is they, they're interested in, provide the support. Be there as much as you can. If you can't be there yourself, try your best to get kids involved in other things. And then all of it falls apart. If you're in a lower income, I'm working three jobs environment. We just don't provide the social support we need to. It's certainly not in the United States, certainly not in most communities. So all of what we're talking about is relevant, but there's an asterisk next to it. And that's not okay. And pouring a lot of money from the government in, in a short-term one, two, three-year program ain't going to solve it. We actually need to get into the roots of this and figure out how to provide reasonable housing, affordable housing, affordable um, childcare, uh, you know, if it's even paid for at all. Um, you know, we have a lot of work to do in just building the structure to let everybody have at least a reasonable degree of equity. We're not interested in doing that. We still like playing the race thing a lot. And um you know, different countries have different versions of that, but we really need to clean up our act. We're a bunch of grownups. It's time. I don't know what we're waiting for. I came into the interview series with a preconception. My preconception was that students and teachers largely live in parallel worlds. High compliance and conformance, high reward for doing things the way that they're supposed to be done versus how what might actually make a difference. Do you feel like the interviews have shed any light on that? I haven't changed my opinion, but what's your sense? Are, what's, the, what's the situation for teachers right now? 
some teachers are going to rise above no matter what. Let's call that 10%. There's a bunch of rules. Now there's a new policy. You have to use the red book and not the green book or the purple book, but not the this. Um, we're going to have more testing. And, and the best teachers, and we've seen some of them on, on uh, because we've had some of the um, uh, uh, best teachers of the National Teacher of the Year. Um, and it almost doesn't matter what you throw at them. They're going to get it right. And the kids are really going to thrive as a result. And they're going to have terrific stories. And they're going to have influence on others. And they'll win awards or at least feel good about what they're doing. And the community will too. But that's not every teacher. And what they're doing requires an, requires a certain kind of headset. Like you just, they're just good at it, right? But also they do a lot of work. I mean, that's, you know, you, you, what you see is the teacher standing in front of the class. What you don't see is all the work that went in before them. You know, I go to the fish market, which is open Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays. And it never occurs to me that a whole bunch of people worked on Wednesday in order to make the market possible on Thursday. We don't see what the teachers do. Um, so you have that sort of, you need to give them much more freedom within certain lane, certain curriculum. You know, I, I don't know that math rises to the level of five days a week or social studies or science, but I do think health probably does. Um, give them the general picture of what it is we want to accomplish and hold them accountable for it. What do you mean by hold them accountable? Let's see how most of the kids do most of the time. Do we need to standardize that test? No, because one kid is into javelin throwing and the other is into jogging. So what are you going to do with that? Um, but you get a sense pretty quickly hanging out with the kids, whether or not they're making the kind of progress you want them to and what the areas are that we need to, uh, to improve upon. And then we have technology too. So we have that as a tool, which is not intended. I don't think for standardizing everything in the universe and grabbing all the data and having it follow your whole life. But, you know, if I can sit down and go, yeah, how much of this do I actually know? And I can self-test myself and then discuss that with a teacher. That's a good thing. I, you know, I mean, if I, I, I would love to be able to name every single country in the world. I can't. I beat myself up on that a little bit. What's the solution? I need to spend more time doing that. Um, I'm going to learn that at some point. I know a lot of it. That's the way I learn. I kind of look at the world going, what don't I know that I probably need to know? What did somebody tell me that I need to know that I don't know? It's like, that's embarrassing that I don't know that. I probably should know that. I don't really get away with the, and when you're older, you'll learn that anymore. If we kind of close this interview up back on the topic of change or systemic change, one of the things I feel like you and I kept recognizing was there were really thoughtful, smart people who understood deeply the things that are going on. Let's take, for example, positive psychology, but have had limited influence and we've looked at individuals who 20 or 30 years ago wrote brilliantly about some of these same dilemmas how do we think about actually making change when the system often just seems to move forward even when there are bright and thoughtful people who are pushing back uh, we've talked about this some I think our only hope is the teachers. Let me break that down. From on high, state government, if you want to work with the United States, or a Ministry of Education, if you want to work elsewhere, 
primarily politicians. Some of them have an education background. They're going to be there for four years or eight years or maybe 12 years or something. They're not going to be there for a very long time. And whatever it is that they did, if it goes a little more radical, the person who follows them is going to pull it back or the people. We replicate that in school districts, how we manage in the U.S. It's a group of local citizens. Typically, they're more local politician than educator. They don't feel they have a lot of control over curriculum, but they have a lot of control over logistics and budget, and that can have an impact. They also have the superintendent of schools, the local boss, working for them. All well-intentioned, not very change-oriented, difficult for them to recognize the need for change, difficult for them to implement it. And then you go down into the building principal, who's really just trying to manage the chaos of having 500 young people and a staff and keep everybody just kind of moving every day. And principals move in and out. So again, they don't necessarily have the ability, but teachers stay. They stay in remarkable numbers and they stay for decades. Some of them fall out. More of them actually move from one school to another than drop out of the system, uh, at least in the U.S., and unlike students and parents who are really short timers, who kind of grow to understand and then all of a sudden they're focused on what happens afterwards. So it's the teachers who have the power. And the remarkable thing is there are so many of them, but they don't talk a lot to each other. They do about very specific subjects in very specific ways, sometimes geographically very proximate. But it doesn't have to be that way. And with the Internet and with increasing numbers of new uh, means to have teachers communicate with each other, what school could be is one of them, for example. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more interaction and a lot more power being adopted by teachers because they are the ones who actually are administrating the services and have direct day-to-day -day contact and can see the trends. And we need to figure out a way to empower them to make sure they're properly paid, to make sure the respect is there. Um, they're the only ones who are going to be able to change the system. And, and um, one of the book ideas I'm working with is how to provide a roadmap to, so the teachers actually have something to follow so that they can see the impact they can have. They know the impact they can have on that classroom. I don't think they realize how many of them there are and how similar their issues are and what would happen if they all work together. They have the most power in the whole system. They're the ones who probably can bring about change most effectively. And I want to help. Let's finish there. And let's committing to do that. Let's commit to doing this again after the next 50 interviews. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds <laughs> okay. good. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you for making all this possible because none of these 50 interviews would have happened had you not said, hey, anybody want to do this? And my raising my hand and you're saying, okay, let's do it. So thank you for that and all the other things you do. I appreciate that. And thank you. Please join us at futureofeducation.com and at reinventing.school. Take care now and bye. <laughs>